gold. Think about what that word signifies to you and to the world around us. Uh, Just the very mention of it um, has a luster to it, an impact to it. For centuries, men and women have sought it and prized it. They have killed for it and lied for it. They have gambled and died for it. They have conquered and cried for it. Gold has been a a powerful motivator, a powerful symbol, in a sense, of so many of the aspirations of the human spirit and person. Think about what gold represents, symbolically speaking. Gold is a sign of prosperity, isn't it? Uh, it's, It's something that adds luster to almost anybody's appearance. It adds value to any art object. It adds a glitter of wealth to anybody who displays it. Gold is also a symbol of victory. We give out the gold medals. We give gold stars and gold records and gold cards and golden globes. These are the things that the best and the brightest we honor by giving them a gold. And as if this was not enough to suggest uh, its value, gold is also a seal of longevity as well. Prosperity, victory, and longevity are what gold really represents. In some societies, even today, people actually eat gold. You can buy gold and you can sprinkle it on your food and it's believed to actually enhance your life to consume it. Even here in America, we uh, top we, our, our spark plugs with gold to make them last longer. We make our wedding rings out of gold to symbolize the length and longevity and endurance of our marriages. We cast our retirement watches in it for the simple reason that gold will not rust, it will not corrode, as other substances will. Even for us, gold has come to be synonymous with long life. And that's why it shouldn't maybe surprise us that in the story we read in Daniel chapter 3, that when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of ancient Babylon, was looking for symbols uh, around which to Uh, draw his whole nation together when he was searching for some kind of icon that would help uh, represent the prosperity and the victory and the longevity of his mighty reign, Nebuchadnezzar chose to fashion for his people and for himself a statue made of what? Of gold. That's right. We can read again the detail in chapter 3. Now, you have to understand that what motivated the creation of this particular icon that Nebuchadnezzar called for, um, sprung from an experience that Nebuchadnezzar had most recently had. If you were with us or had a chance to listen into the storyline from the message last week, then you know that the king had recently had a very upsetting dream, a serious stress dream that kept him up and, and sent him on a search to understand its meaning. And in the dream, we didn't talk about the details of that dream last week, this is what uh, he encountered. In the dream, uh, he saw the kingdoms of humankind all represented in the form of a giant statue. And, And the giant statue had at the very top of it his head, made out of what? Out of gold, that's right. It was a flattering picture of himself, the golden headed leader of the whole world. The problem with the vision was that the golden head soon gave way. It gave way to a silver chest and arms, 
I think you can see the representation there on that slide. It then uh, descended to a bronze belly and thighs and then to legs of iron and to feet of clay. And when Daniel was brought in and was able to interpret the dream for the king and tell him what this really meant, then the, the, the reality of the dream began to come home from Nebuchadnezzar in an even more kind of upsetting way. Because Daniel had a simple headline, a, a major message for Nebuchadnezzar, and the message simply was, nothing made by humankind lasts forever. Nothing made by man or woman is going to last forever. In time, of course, and this is what the dream was telling Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians would be conquered by the Medes and the Persians, who were notorious for their silver and uh, for their silvery uh, uh, battle uh, wear. Uh, that would eventually give way. The, the uh, Greeks and the Macedonians would surrender to the Romans, who were often uh, represented in terms of, of the, uh, the, uh, the power of, the, of bronze and then uh, iron and then clay. And then eventually all four of those empires, the, the Medes and the Persians first, the Greeks and the Macedonians second, the Romans third, all four of them, plus Babylon, Babylon is the fourth, would be smashed into wheat dust by the coming of the greatest of all administrations. And this was the ultimate conclusion of the dream. The greatest administration would come and would leave every pretender to real enduring power uh, clarified, in a sense, about the nature of life. And the scripture reads in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Now Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream was, in fact, a prophecy of the coming of Jesus and of the inbreaking of the eternal kingdom of God. Uh, centuries and centuries and centuries before this was even imaginable in the person of Jesus, Daniel was given a vision, a capacity to see the coming new kind of kingdom that God was going to bring. And this was revolutionary in his time because most Jewish people were still expecting a political kingdom to come in the line of King David, but Daniel understood this was going to be a different kind of kingdom. And the news that Daniel shared was really great news to people who do not think that government is the answer to all human problems. It's amazing how we stick to that idea. It, it feels like just almost every election cycle we keep thinking, oh, the next administration will fix this. The next administration will be the answer. Uh, this message that Daniel gave was, was very good news to people who believe that without a genuine spiritual revival, all the administrations of this world are going to be very limited in their effect. Uh, it's good news to people who understand that the most important kingdom is the one that happens in the heart as we allow ourselves to come under the benevolent reign of God and then live out of those motivations in a way that impacts politics and economics and sociology in a far more creative way. What Daniel shared, however, was not very good news. It was very unhappy news to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the lord of a very massive and very entrenched bureaucracy, a human uh, theocracy where he was the theo, where he was the god, 
that had been placed at the head of everything in his own mind. And so old Nebuchadnezzar here basically just decided to thumb his nose at that particular vision of the future. I mean, at the beginning, when Daniel interpreted the dream and settled him down and helped him understand it, Nebuchadnezzar was thrilled, and he elevated Daniel to a position of even greater leadership in his administration. But as he thought about it, uh, as he really sat with this idea, he got very uncomfortable with it, and he sought to reassert uh, his dominion again. How often does this happen in our own lives? When somebody speaks a word of truth to us, our spouse or a close friend just kind of challenges us in a way that we actually need challenging. And for the moment, we try and take it in. For the moment, we change. And then before long, the old self, the old false self, reasserts itself, and we're back at it again, trying to exercise our own kingdom. I confess, if my wife was here, she'd tell you stories. I confess how many times I've done that uh, myself. Uh, and so in this particular instance, Nebuchadnezzar decides to kind of reassert himself by ordering the construction of, of, a, of a literal statue. He'd seen this vision in a dream. He now uh, ordered a, a statue that was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That's the translation of 60 cubits and 6 cubits. 90 feet tall and 9 feet. Think of something almost, I mean, just you can imagine, 90 feet, huge, the length of a basketball court um, uh, in size. Uh, and, and basically, this statue was different from the dream in that not only the head, but the entire body of the statue was gold. What was he trying to communicate there? There's going to be no other kingdoms. The heck with the Medes and the Persians and the Romans and the Greeks and the Macedonians. I'm going to be ruling forever. That's what he's saying in, in this uh, representation. He wants to remind himself and his subjects and the gods and anybody who might be listening uh, that the kingdom of Babylon, a.k.a. his legacy, would go on forever and ever. Amen. So, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this statue. And then he commands that everybody come to the ribbon cutting for this statue. And the gathering that day on the plain of Dura, as the scriptures put it, was like a cross between a presidential inauguration and one of those great marches on Washington, that fills the entire mall of, of, of the Capitol, as we've so often seen these on television. And uh, all these people are gathered there, and you can just picture it. I want you, in fact, to use your imagination and picture this, just this gigantic, vast, teeming crowd of people on the plane. And everybody's elbowing each other out for position and trying to, to, to get closer and, and, and get a spot at the falafel stand. And, and uh, you know, they're just, or get closer to see the statue. I, I attended Austin City Limits. Uh, there were 70,000 people a couple weeks ago. I was down in, in Texas. And, 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 and how, I, I remember how my brother and my son and I just worked to edge ourselves forward to get, you know, get close to see uh, Childish Gambino or Tame Impala or, you know, the different bands that were at this thing. That's what's going on. People are the same in every generation in lots of ways. And you can just picture the incredible kind of festival in a sense. And, 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 and then all of a sudden an official uh, who's up at the podium at the front in front of the statue gets up. And I don't know whether he's using a megaphone or what it took to reach that crowd, but he, he blares out something, uh, some kind of instruction or some kind of message, and, and the people up front start to pass it back to the crowd. And you're at the back of the crowd, and it finally ripples back to you, the message that, that everybody needs to hear. And the message simply is that when the music starts playing... When you hear the music playing, we're all to bow down to the king's statue. 
And, I quote scripture, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now suppose you're there in the crowd, but you're not actually a true native of Babylon. Um, you are not actually regularly accustomed to doing this kind of thing in front of a human being, to honor a human being. Suppose that, that you're uh, different. Pretend for a moment that you had sworn your loyalty, your fealty, um, to a king vastly greater than Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to a kingdom substantially more impressive than, than Babylon or any other that would follow. And imagine that, that, that your culture that you had come from, the, the, the kingdom that you really belonged to, told you that prosperity had a lot more to do with uh, the integrity of your character and the purity of your heart than it had to do with the glittering baubles of society. Or suppose that, that the true king that you actually did bow down to regularly taught you that the victory that really mattered most in this life had to do with conquering the inner temptations to lie, to hate, to lust, uh, to, to envy, that, it had, that, that this was the great battle, really, and that that was an even more important battle than gaining the upper hand over the other people and the other nations around about you. And pretend for a second that in the country where you actually belonged, uh, true longevity wasn't measured in terms of the healthy years that you got to spend luxuriating in a comfortable Babylonian suburb someplace, but in the number of days, that's what true luxury was, uh, or true longevity was. It, it lay in the number of days that you got to spend in uncompromised service to the king of kings, uh, wherever you happen to live. Uh, that was the ultimate uh, sense of value for you. In other words, just suppose for a moment that you were a Jew living in Babylon or a Christian living in Chicagoland or a citizen of the kingdom of God living anywhere. Just suppose that you remembered your name, that you remembered your identity in the midst of this moment of, of, of conflict and choice. When the music starts playing and everybody around you is dropping to their knees and then onto their faces and worshiping the golden statue, what are you going to do? What's the call for you in that particular moment? As I think about that scenario for myself, I think, you know, I know what I would want to do. I, would know, I know what I would, I would hope I would do, but I'm not entirely sure what I'd actually do in that particular moment. And the reason I say that is because I, I am conscious of the extent to which, even as far along as I am a, as a, as a uh, human being and as a follower of Jesus, how many ways I'm still tempted to compromise and to bow to the wayward world's gold, the, its version of success and prosperity and longevity and all those kinds of things. And, and, and you would not believe, or maybe you would from your own experience, just how 
quickly my rationalization muscles start working when I'm presented with a moment of the kind I'm just describing. I don't know if you can relate to any of this, but I'll just throw out some scenarios for you and then just ask for yourself, is this possibly true for me? Have you ever given in to some temptation to compromise your loyalty to the way of God by using what I would call the I don't really mean it dodge? You say, look, I'm, I'm just going to bow down, but I won't actually be worshiping the idol. I'm going to spend my money on this particular thing instead of that particular kingdom project, but I'm not going to actually let this thing become my idol. I won't do that. Have you ever given in to that, uh, that dodge? Or have you ever used the old just this one time approach? Uh, you say, all right, I'm going to bow down and I'm going to worship here just this one time and then I will ask God to forgive me. That's what I will do. It's, it's not like I'm going to make cheating or lying or stepping out on my spouse a regular thing. It's just this one time. And then I am back. You can count on me. I am back into the service of the king. Or maybe you've, you like the I've got no real choice uh, excuse. Uh, you say, look, the, the, the king has absolute power here, and I, I, I've got to obey him. I know this business deal is a little bit shady. I know that, but the boss has authority over me, so I'm going to go through with it. God is going to understand. I'm just following orders. Or perhaps you like the I owe it to somebody approach. Uh, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, think about him. He's done so much for me. I mean, look at this great uh, kingdom of Babylon I get to live in. Uh, I owe him some respect here. I know this this backbiting gossip that I'm hearing doesn't please God. I, I know it would be rude and ungrateful to this friend who's talking, however, not to bow down and join in. I don't want to be out of sync with my friends. I owe it to them to, to be with them in this pattern of behavior. Or here's another good one. It's what I simply call, it's, it's the when in Babylon dodge. Uh, you whisper to yourself as you drop to your knees, come on, it's not like I'm home where my family and friends are going to see me, uh, where they're going to be hurt or ashamed of what I'm doing. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. How many of you can relate to that one? Or there's the lots of people do worse excuse. Look, I know plenty of people who've slept with temple prostitutes here, okay? I, I know people who actually put idols in their homes, bending the ethical knee a little bit on this issue. Isn't half as bad as that other stuff. So I'm just going down this time. I'm, I, and I'm still relatively good. Or have you ever used the who's it going to hurt line? Hey, it, isn't the really important thing here is I'm not really hurting anybody else. I'm making a personal choice. When I read that pornography, I use that drug. I'm not really damaging anybody else. So what's the problem with a little bowing down? Or my favorite one of all, the fight another day approach. We say, come on, let's be reasonable. If I get myself burned up by standing up for God on this issue, some heathen's going to come along and probably just take my place. And then who will be there to look after God's concerns? I'm going to live to fight another day. Why is it so easy to come up with all those rationalizations? How did I do that? 
Because I have lived according to every one of them at some point or another in my life. I mean, that's just how easy it is. I'm probably the worst sinner here. That's why I have to be a pastor. I need the help <laughs> from all of you. But it's, it's possible that for some of you, you can really resonate with some of this stuff. We use a lot of clever rationalizations when the music of temptation, when the music of this powerful surrounding culture begins to play. So many of us find our knees weakening. And I think that if there had been a, a video camera there at the front of the, of the statue and it had been panning that huge teeming crowd on the plain of Dura that day, it would have recorded hundreds Hundreds of ostensibly God-fearing Jews amidst the rest of the Babylonians, people who are not unlike you and me, all dropping down to their knees before the king's gold. In fact, when you think of the colossal pressure in that moment to conform to the, or the burning consequences of not bowing down, it's just mind-blowing that anybody didn't. That anybody was left standing. And yet the Bible says there was. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ah, I think of those guys. They're the, they're the, the faithful brothers, the counterpoints to the other three guys you've heard of probably. My shack, your shack, and to bed we go. Those are three other guys. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three Jewish young people alone, uh, Daniel's apparently not there that day, uh, these three stand tall. Now, wouldn't it be great if when we dared to do a thing like that, when we dared to be faithful to God in risky circumstances, wouldn't it be great if we had the absolute assurance that his angels would be our perfect bodyguards or that his grace would be an impenetrable shield around us like the steel cage of a luxury car, or like a shark tank when there are great whites outside, wouldn't it be great if we had that absolute certainty that we would always be protected from any kind of pain or harm? Sometimes uh, Christians and even preachers talk as if it will work that way. They will take certain passages of Scripture that are meant to emphasize the, the eternal provision and care and ultimate security we have in God, and they will suggest that it's like a rabbit's foot. You do, do right by God, You'll have no pain or problems in this world. And there are individual passages which, if you take them out of context, do actually seem to suggest that no harm can possibly befall a believer when he or she acts faithfully. But the absolute proof that God's providence is a little bit more complex than that is what? The cross of Christ. That's right. It's Jesus and his cross. It's been said that the cross of Christ reminds us that Jesus came not to remove suffering from our lives, but to fill it with his presence. In this world, you will suffer, Jesus said. It's just, it's part of the deal. It's what it means to live in this fallen world. But be brave, he says. I have overcome the world, and one day I will overcome this with you. What uh, has been so painful and so lost and so um, wrecking and ravaging will become untrue will become untrue, will be restored. This is the promise Jesus gives us. He does not promise us salvation from suffering, but salvation through it and beyond it. 
And for the sake of his wise purposes, God does sometimes choose to intervene to heal a disease. Uh, Sometimes he does do this. I've seen this happen. There are times when he, he provides manna for a hungry belly or he rescues somebody from a disaster that would have otherwise fallen them befallen the man, chances are that we are being rescued every day in more ways than we know by his grace. Chances are. But sometimes it works a different way. For, For every time that God delivers someone from the bonfires of life, leaving us not even smelling of smoke, as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this famous story. If you read the detail, he said they came out of the fire and they didn't even smell of smoke. For every time that God does something like that, it must be said that for the sake of his wise purposes, sometimes he does allow the flames of this world to consume for the moment the faithful ones. And that's the deal. That's why Jesus says we must count the cost. It's why uh, he says you must come after me. It's why he says uh, going with him involves taking up our cross. And it is also what makes the actions of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story something I think we can learn from. Uh, this is really kind of a remarkable story. You ever notice as you hear biblical stories so often, they kind of don't even phase you anymore. Let this one phase you. It phases me. This is an amazing story. Because here's what these guys say. I quote Daniel 3, chapter, uh, verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But even if he does not... We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So Neb listens to this incredible testimony of faith, right? And he says, wow, that's really impressive. Untie those guys. Get some good wine. Let's let them eat. No, that's not what happens. The text goes on to tell us that for that response of faith, faith, they were bound fast and hurled into a furnace so hot that even the guards who escorted them to the edge of the furnace were instantly killed by the heat. Wow. Wow. Here's the question. If it's not already popping up for you, let me put it in your mind. Why'd they do that? (laughs) Why would Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do that? And the bigger question, I guess the personal question behind it is, why might we? Why might we make the tough choice when the risk is high to be faithful in following God? Let me suggest a few possible motivations. The, The scriptures don't make everything clear, so let me just offer some ideas and see if any of these register is potentially true for you. Maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't want to let their father down. Maybe they didn't want to let their father down. You know, a thoughtful child of God would almost rather die than purposely disobey the first and the foremost commandment of the father. And God states it in Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt have no other gods beside me or before me and shall not make or bow down to any graven image. It is the number one thing God asks of his kids, of you and of me, 
Uh, he says, please don't value created things over your creator. Please don't do that. Everything will go awry if you start doing that. Nothing brings God greater heartache than when we forsake him through idolatry. This is why living in America is a challenge. Because we are an idol manufacturing culture of the likes nobody's ever seen. Uh, we're just so good at it. We are like Babylon on steroids. Nothing, however, brings God greater joy than when we refuse to bow down to things that are lesser than him, even though everybody else is doing it. Um, secondly, maybe Daniel's friends just wanted to preserve the most sacred thing about themselves. You see, when you refuse to surrender to this world's understanding of prosperity and victory and longevity, and when you go out this week, as I pray that you will, and you just refuse to allow yourself those clever rationalizations that, that we're tempted to allow ourselves, you will be preserving the most beautiful and important thing about you. You'll be preserving the integrity of your soul, the image and likeness of God in you. That's what you'll do. You'll be strengthening the muscle that keeps that integrity going. To paraphrase Jesus, what shall it profit you to gain all the fool's gold in the world but lose the most precious gift you have, which is the integrity of your internal, eternal soul? What shall it profit you to do that? Thirdly, maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just hoped to strengthen the power and the authority of their witness. Maybe they cared about that. Uh, think about this. If Daniel's friends had bowed down to the pressure to conform to Babylonian culture, how could they have ever again really talked in a convincing way of the power and position of their God above all earthly authorities? Right? How could they do that? The answer is they couldn't. They would have stained their name. They would have lost the moral authority to speak uh, into the lives of others. But instead, their faithfulness in this story, as we go on to see, helps to win the king and many of his court to faith in the living God. My folks, my friends, there's going to be people this coming week and month and year uh, who will be drawn to Jesus Christ and who will be used powerfully in his ministries in this earth and with whom you will be in fellowship one day. You'll be walking across eternity and you'll see their faces and they will light up as they see you coming their way. There will be people like that simply because you dared to be a witness in our times. You dared to live differently in our times. You were an example of unusual faithfulness that impressed them as more priceless than all of the golden icons in this world. You're going to have that impact. I pray you will. Fourthly, I suspect that Daniel's companions had their eyes on the joy set before them. The scriptures say in the book of Hebrews that it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. He did not go to the cross because he was some kind of a masochist. He did not go to the cross to, 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 because he thought there would be something inherently uh, positive about identifying with, with, with physical pain. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. 
for the joy of knowing he'd fulfilled the Father's will, that he'd saved other people who put their faith in him, for the joy of entering once again into the Father's presence and have the Father say, well done, well done. So God promises that the glory and the beauty and the love and the comfort that will be ours in heaven will actually make up for the most hideous and agonizing losses we undergo in this life. Is that easy to take in right now? No, it's not. And, and I don't blame you. I don't uh, condemn you or criticize you if you find that one hard to believe. I'm just saying keep holding on to that idea with trembling hand. As Christians, we can give up the fool's gold that the world tries to sell us because what God is going to give us freely in eternity will make even 90 feet of the world's greatest riches look like little more, just little more than flaking gold paint. Believe that. So let one final reason that these Hebrew servants might have dared to stand up uh, touch your heart today as it did mine as I looked at this text. Had they known the full story of Scripture as we do, had they understood fully the awesome mystery and wonder that the very next verses reveal, I think they would have felt such conviction in standing strong. And I want to read from the Scriptures, Daniel 3 at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, he's looking to the furnace, by the way, from a safe distance, he's looking to the furnace, the king is. And he asks his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached and the opening of the blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Almost like Jesus approaching the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. And so Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire. Who do you suppose the fourth figure was? Why do you think Jesus refers to him through the Gospels, himself through the Gospels, as the Son of Man? He draws on this powerful text to identify who he truly is. Jesus, the pre-incarnate form of him, who many years later would say, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. For I am with you always, everywhere you go, through whatever flames, through whatever heat, through whatever loss, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. I will close by saying that I don't know whether or not you will pass unsinged through whatever particular fires you're in right now or may face in the days ahead. But this I want to pray. Do not bow down to fool's gold. Do not bow down to fool's gold when by standing up and standing strong, he will refine in you his gold in the center of your being. This the Bible teaches 
is true success. This is true success. If you're obedient to him, when the heat is on, you'll bring delight to the Father, you will build up your own soul, you will increase the integrity of your witness for him and its impact on other people, you will know one day his absolute joy and his ultimate reward, and even if the flames get very hot in the here and now, he will be with you always, and he will carry you, you can be sure of it, to that place where one day, as Revelation tells us, tears will be no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.